If you have a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be finishing up this chapter today as we come down the home stretch of 2 Corinthians. We have got about four more weeks, I think it is, in this letter. Uh, actually, uh, it's going to be some of the other elders here at Trinity they are going to bring us home. We, uh, I uh, leave later, this, later today, actually, for a week's vacation in the next two weeks. So, uh, so, so next week, somebody, uh, Shaka Mitchell will be preaching the two weeks after that bill, and then Seth will be preaching as I get ready for the next series, which is going to be, drum roll pre- please, everybody sucks in a big breath of anticipation. We're going to study the Psalms together. Woohoo! We're going to study the Psalms. We're going to be getting the Psalms from the first week in July all the way through Advent. We're going to celebrate Advent together through the Psalms. And I, for one, am very excited about it, albeit very behind in my preparation. So the elders are going to be covering preaching for the next several weeks so we can get fully prepared for that series. And I want to encourage you guys to go ahead and start reading ahead. If you haven't ever spent much time in the Psalms, um, this summer could be a great chance for you to do that. I mean, there's a lot of different strategies for making your way through them and, and sort of recognizing what it is that you're reading. I'll be talking about some of those strategies as we actually get into that series, but I want you to know that there are, uh, at least for now, if you want to go ahead and get into it, there are two books over here on the resource table uh, that are daily reading guides in the Psalms. One of them is called The Songs of Jesus by a pastor from New York City named Tim Keller. The other one is called Psalms Day by Day by uh, the late Alec Motier, one of my favorite uh, Bible teachers from the last century. Um, Both of those are over there. You can grab one of those and it'd be a faithful guide to you. Much more to come between now and the beginning of that series. For now, we're back in 2 Corinthians and we are in the home stretch. And that means three chapters that are admittedly a little bit strange if you haven't read the rest of the letter. Paul ends his letter with this direct and passionate personal response to some people who had come into this community that he founded and tried to undermine his authority in the community. They tried to undermine his trustworthiness as a guide to what it means to follow Jesus. So Paul, when he gets to these last three chapters, takes up self-defense it's not something he wanted to do. In fact, he said many times already in the letter how, how much he didn't want to do it, how he'd hoped to avoid having to sort of descend to this level of proving himself again. But he's willing to do it because he knows there's a lot at stake. And think about it like this. If you're you a, a physician, say a specialist in, uh, in infectious disease and the importance of vaccines and in the, the, the usefulness of vaccines to warding off infectious disease and protecting children. And someone in your family, maybe a, uh, a brother or a sister, decided that they were against vaccines. They didn't want to vaccinate their children. They thought that there was more harm to, there's more risk of harm in vaccines than in, than in uh, avoiding vaccines. You as a, as a specialist, as an expert, might actually start trolling out all your credentials. You might start telling them, I have degrees from here and here and here. I did my fellowship here. Here's my article that was published in the Journal of American Medical Association. You might start piling up your credentials and it might sound to someone listening, maybe not hearing the context, as if you were bragging. But in reality, what you'd be doing is trying to save the lives of their children. You'd be trying to defend your own reputation only so that you could convince them to listen to you and to follow advice that you think they need to be healthy. That's what Paul's doing here. He's starting to trot out his credentials, but only because he thinks that their souls hang in the balance and whether or not they listen to him or to these imposters who've come in after him. 
Boasting is the theme that runs through these next two chapters. It's going to come up several different times. I want to, uh, we're going to, the other guys are going to be unpacking what it is that Paul boasts about and why over the next three weeks, but I want to set the stage today. At the heart of the passage we're going to look at is a long list of Paul's experiences as an apostle. It reads to me like a Johnny Cash song, like I've been everywhere, man, you guys know that one? I want you to think about that little beat and that melody in the background as I read through what Paul's description of his own journey. And before I get into it, I want to go ahead and forecast This description of his life as a minister of this gospel is not a pretty picture. It's actually full of shameful, painful experiences that all of us would rather avoid than go through. Things like imprisonments, things like beatings, things like shipwrecks, robberies. Hunger and thirst and daily, relentless anxiety. That's Paul's description of his life as a leader in the church, as an apostle of this gospel. If you were a Greek person, someone with a Greek background like those that Paul was writing to, you'd know that this sort of life journey is what happens to you when the gods are angry with you. If you were an educated Greek person at this time, you probably would have been exposed to the Odyssey, for example, Homer's epic poem. We've been reading a vastly condensed and greatly filtered version of the Odyssey to our children, uh, which they they have been gobbling up. They love it. You guys may be familiar with this story. Uh, So the Odyssey tells the story of Odysseus coming back from the Trojan War, trying to make it back to his home in Ithaca. Everything starts out great. Then he gets to this island that's inhabited by this strange creature called the Cyclops, whom he, uh, uh, let's say, uh, whose eye he removes, put it that way, Uh, whose eye he removes and then begins to taunt. Well, the Cyclops didn't appreciate the taunting. I mean, the eye thing was bad enough, but the taunting really got to him. And so he calls out to Poseidon, whom he's kin to somehow, the god of the sea, and calls down a curse on Odysseus. The rest of the story, hundreds of pages in English, printed text, is a story of one bad thing after another happening to Odysseus as he's trying to get back to his family. One thing after another. Everything goes wrong. It's all caused by these gods that he has angered. So the Greek people have that in their minds, and they're, they're going to listen to Paul describe his life's journey, and they're going to think, that's a guy who angered the wrong god. And Paul knows that's how they'll respond. He knows that they expect good things happen to people who are on God's good side and bad things happen to people who are on God's bad side. And he's intentionally trying to push them. He wants to reframe what they think about how God treats his friends. And I want you to have that in, your back, in, your, in the back of your mind as we read through this. Then we're going to unpack it together in three steps. We're going to talk about why Paul boasts to begin with. Really quickly, just to make sure you get the context. What Paul boasts about. That's where we're going to push in on these details. This is not the boast they were looking for. And then we're going to talk about what Paul's boast means for us. Now I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word, if you will, please. So I, uh, as I read uh, from 2 Corinthians 11, I'm going to start in verse 16. And then I'm going to read to the end of the chapter in verse 33. This, friends, is God's word to us. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool. 
so that I, may, I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers. This is where it really starts to sound Johnny Cash-like to me. Danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of things that show my weakness. The God and Father, the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to start with why Paul boasts to make sure it's clear from the first several verses that I just read for you. He begins his his boasting with a sharp, obvious, sarcastic takedown of their expectation that he prove himself again. He's already proved himself over and over. He should have nothing more to prove about his credentials as an apostle or about his love for them and devotion to them. But yet again, they are doubting him and asking him to prove himself. His response is sarcastic. It's meant to expose them and the foolishness of what they're looking for. They've let their heads be turned again by teachers who love to compare themselves with each other And it seems like these teachers who are always comparing themselves with each other, trying to one-up one another, have now turned to them and said, you need to make Paul compare himself to us. And here's our credentials. Let him offer his own letter of recommendation. And then you compare. And you see who you want to follow. Paul's never been anything but clear about his message and his ministry. And he doesn't like the fact that they're asking him for more letters of recommendation that they want him to join in this boasting game. He's resisted up to this point, but finally he just, it's like he just throws up his hands. He says, all right, you want a fool? I'll be a fool. You want boasting? Now I'll boast. I think that's what's behind this language that he uses. Some of it is, is not immediately clear, but I think this, knowing this is where Paul's coming from helps us understand, for example, what he says in verse 17, where he says, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. 
think what he's saying there is that the way of Christ is not comparing. The way of Christ is not always measuring ourselves against one another. This, this boasting, this constant comparing of resumes, like, that's not the way of the Lord. I'm going I'm to do this now, but you need to know this is, this is foolish activity. Still he's jumping in. He's boasting now, though, not to give them what they're looking for, but to expose them yet again for what they're looking for. And that comes through really clearly in the, in, when he actually gets to his list, the things that he boasts about. The why he's boasting is they've, they've demanded it of him and he figures, I'm giving you what you're looking for, but not exactly what you're looking for. When he gets to his list, when you actually start to look at what Paul boasts about, well, then why Paul boasts in the first place comes through even more clearly. It turns out that he boasts not in things that would impress them with all of his accomplishments, but in things that prove his weakness. Even when he gets to his boasting, he's still being ironic. He's still turning the tables on him. It's not a sincere list. It is sincere in one level. It's like things all happen to him. But he's not, he's not providing them with some credentials that he thinks will, will convince them to believe in him. He's, he's actually not going to play their game. He's only going to pretend to play their game. I think that it's important to notice that because, because there are some communities, even in Paul's day, where this list of hardships would have won him some support. The Stoics, for example, were a group of thinkers who believed that it was that it kind of a, a, had a monastic impulse to them, a belief that if you deny yourself or detach yourself from the material world, that was a better life. So to win authority, win, win the, a hearing among people who liked the Stoics, you might write a list just like this. And this might actually be sincere and straightforward bragging. Some of us might be tempted to do that, to sort of pile up, use our hardships as a badge of honor. But uh, Paul's not doing that here, though. This is, a, this is an ironic list. And the reason we know that is who he's writing to. These people want power. They want visible success. They want resumes that pop. So Paul knows who he's speaking to. He knows what they're wanting. And he knows he's got to convince them not to want it anymore. So pretending to give them what they want, he gives them just the opposite. He's still trying to expose them. Now, initially, it looks like he's going to draw them in. It looks like he's going to play their game. Did you notice this in verse 21? Verse 22, rather, he starts to pile up some genuine credentials. Are they Hebrews? Me too. I've got the background. I am part of the people of Israel. I speak the right language. I have the right lineage. I'm even from the offspring of Abraham. I'm a servant of Christ just like they are. At this point, it's like he's about to build like a genuine, straightforward list of credentials or accomplishments. And then, then in verse 30, 23, his list takes a turn. He says that he has had far greater labors than they have. And at that point, you can use your imagination to think through what's probably going to come next. I would think something like, here, here's some examples another commentator gave. Paul, you expect him to say something like, well, I've established more churches than they did. Or I preached the gospel in more lands than they did, to more ethnic groups than they did. I've traveled further than they have. I've won way more converts than any of them have. I've written more books. My letters are going to stand the test of time. I've raised more money, supervised over more councils among the early church. I've walked with God more deeply, more devotedly. I've seen visions 
I've commanded the greatest crowds. I've performed the greatest miracles. And you know what? Paul could have said stuff like that and actually had experiences to back it up. The book of Acts is full of amazing things that God did through Paul. That's what you're expecting him to say. But in fact, his list takes a turn in the other direction. Look at his resume. He says he's had far greater labors and his first example is imprisonments. Not just inconvenient, not just poor living conditions, but shameful places in the ancient world. Countless beatings, again, in public, painful, but also shameful. Often near death, living his life insecure, on the edge, never sure how much time he's got left, always vulnerable to the destruction of his body. Five times, he says, he got the lashes. Forty less one. It's a traditional Jewish punishment. The law prohibited people from using more than 40 lashes with the whip. Uh, so they would stop at 39 to make sure they didn't cross over that boundary. He experienced the rod. That's a traditional Roman punishment. Again, public beatings. Painful but also shameful. He was stoned, again, in public. Painful. Near death. Left for dead, Acts tells us. All these show how Paul fared with the powers that be. The kinds of heads that the Corinthians wanted to turn were people who were trying to kill Paul. They wanted to literally run him out of the world. Then Paul turns, though. You might expect him to experience opposition from people who didn't have anything for Jesus, who thought Jesus was a fraud or a fool, who thought he was dangerous. But the last thing you would expect from a guy who's putting it all on the line for this gospel for this God that he believes is true and has promised to do good for them. The last thing you would expect from a guy like that is for him not only to take, to take it from the powers that be, but to actually have the, seem like the natural environment turn against him. But that's exactly what he says next. It's not just people that he struggles with. He was shipwrecked three times. It's like he can't catch a break. He's going all over the world. He's putting his neck into a noose everywhere he goes from the powers that be. And even on the way there, it seems like God stands against him. Three times he's shipwrecked. Spent a night and a day floating around in the sea. Everywhere he goes, he faces dangers, he says. This is verse 26. Danger from rivers. There weren't many bridges back then. From robbers. Wasn't much of a police force back then. From his own people, he says, and from Gentiles. In other words, danger from everybody. Danger in the city, in the wilderness, and sea. In other words, danger everywhere. Everywhere he goes, he lives on the edge. And it doesn't get any better from there. Toil, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst often without food, cold and exposed. He is catching it from every angle. And on top of it all, he lives his life weighed down by the people that he loves. As a minister, as a pastor in their lives, what happens to them affects him. He's fully identified with them. So when he knows they're in trouble, when he knows they're struggling, he feels in trouble. He feels the struggle. Those sleepless nights are not just from having hard ground to lay on. It's from what keeps him up at night. This anxiety for his friends, for these churches. Who is weak, he says, and I'm not weak. Your weakness makes me weak. 
And then finally, his experience in Damascus. That seemed like a strange place to end the list. I don't know if anybody else noticed that, but it, it's almost like he missed his moment to stop. And he's, he's reached this nice climactic point, and then he goes back to this episode where he's had, he has to be lowered down in a basket over the wall of the ancient city of Damascus to escape the people there who wanted to, who wanted to kill him. It seems like a strange place to end. Oftentimes, though, the things that seem out of place are the, are the very places we need to press in if we want to get the best meat. The best meat is often where, it least, uh, where, where it's least obvious why it's there. And I think that's true here. I think what he's pointing us to is something not just, that hap- not just another hardship that happened to him, but, a, but an episode in his life as a minister of Jesus that sums up his sense of himself as an apostle. What happened in Damascus was he's there, he's preaching. This is a city that he was traveling to to persecute Christians when he was converted. He has this meeting with the risen Jesus who comes to him, who appears to him in a flash of light, blinding him, calling him out from opposing Jesus and putting him into service as Jesus' minister. He starts his ministry in Damascus. And right out of the gate, people don't like him. They don't like what he has to say. They don't want him in their town. And he has to be lowered down from this wall just to escape with his life. Well, what I didn't realize, but what several commentators pointed to, is that they, they believe Paul here is actually drawing from an ancient Roman award for military heroism and turning it on its head to show himself as the opposite of a hero. What they think Paul is, is, is trying to do here is, is pull on a tradition known as the Corona Moralis. This was like the Medal of Honor. We give out to to soldiers in the United States. The highest medal that anyone can receive is the Medal of Honor, given for extreme bravery under difficult circumstances. The Roman authorities, their highest medal that they could give was called the Corona Moralis. And that medal went to the person who was the first over the wall in a siege of a fortified city. Back in those days, the best defense you could do was to build a wall all around your city because they didn't have anything to fly over. I mean, it could shoot like fireballs over, I guess, with a catapult or what have you, but they, it was really hard to get over a city, a city's wall. You'd have to you know, pull up the, the ladder and, and then you'd have to climb the ladder with all your gear. And of course, you got people up there manning the wall, like, 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 like chopping at you as you're trying to get over with that ladder. I mean, it was a deadly business to try to, 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 try to take an ancient city. So this highest award was for the guy who made it over first. A lot of times the award was given posthumously because that guy typically died. So... Roman people would have known. The first guy over the wall, that's the hero. That's who we want. You put that at the end of your list of credentials, right? That's the climax of your resume. Climax of Paul's resume is that episode in reverse. Paul's not first man over the wall. No, no, Paul's being lowered down out of the city, helpless, weak, in some sort of straw basket, probably used for salted fish. Pitiful. Shamed. Rejected. One commentator put it like this. Paul's story ends not with a wonder, but with a whimper. No angel appears from heaven. No mighty deed of God accomplishes his deliverance. His escape from the city's mundane. He's let down through the wall in a wicker basket. He appears silly, humiliated, and weak. 
he appears precisely as he is. So what is Paul boasting about? I think it's summed up in verse 30. If I must boast, if I have to play your game, then I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. That's what Paul's boasting about. I want to finish in the last couple minutes we have with what Paul's boast means for us. What does it mean for us? Remember that his defense of himself is also a defense of what genuine, authentic Christianity looks like. That's why he's in this game. He knows whether they trust him or trust these other guys is the difference between them taking the true version of Christianity or counterfeit version that's not going to do them any good. So cutting through the time that separates us from the people he wrote to, the same stakes are here for us. We can accept a version of Christianity that Paul's life gives us, pictures for us, or we can accept a counterfeit version. If we want Paul's version, then what does this boast, this list of his experiences mean for us? What, what does it teach us about what we can expect from life with Jesus? I want to just briefly highlight three things Three things that his boast means for us. And here's the first one. If Paul, if his lifestyle, if what he experienced is a good window into what we can expect from God if we want to be with Jesus, then the first thing we learn is that the most loving and kind thing that God must do for self-reliant people like us is force us to put everything on him. The most loving, the most kind thing that he can do is teach us to put everything on him. The scriptures teach consistently that God is sovereign even over what is broken, that he uses hardship like those things that Paul went through to to spread the gospel and to, to teach his people not to trust in themselves. It's a gift to us when God exposes the weakness of our self-reliance before it's too late. It's a gift if you're sitting on an airplane that has some sort of mechanical problem and that gets discovered after you've boarded on the tarmac. That's an inconvenient thing. That's going to mean a lot of time lost. That's going to mean cramped, hot conditions while they figure out what's going on with the plane and maybe even deplaning and boarding another one. That's not going to be something you would want to go through. But I'd much rather have that problem found on the tarmac than in the air. I'd much rather have it found before I actually had to rely on what was broken already all along. The most kind and loving thing God can do for us is show us what's broken in our self-reliance, breaking us of our self-reliance now before it's too late. I'm not going to steal too much of Shaka's thunder for next week, but this is actually the exact point that Paul's going to make in chapter 12. He just continues this same line of thought, and there he talks about something God did to prove to him he wasn't the reason for the good things in his life, and he talks about God as speaking to him directly, telling him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. You want to know God's power, the only kind of power that will stand not just in life, but in death. You have to be brought to the end of yourself. That's what Paul learned. That's what we'll have to learn too, somewhere along the line. Because God won't let his children settle their hearts on things that pass away. He loves them too much for that. 
That's the first thing we'll learn, the first thing that Paul's boast means for us. Here's the second thing. We need to check our expectations of what it looks like to be blessed by God. The second thing Paul's boast means for us, if Paul is this model of what genuine Christianity looks like, of what we should expect if we want to follow Jesus like he did, then Paul's boast means we got to check our expectations of what it looks like to be blessed by God. One common reason, maybe the most common reason for doubt about the truth of Christianity or even outright rejection of Christianity is the fact of suffering. Suffering in the world, but often suffering in one's own experience. I hear someone say that that, that I I did believe in God. I grew up in a a Christian home. I, I had faith in God, but then this happened. Fill in the blank. I think that assumes a view of God more like that of the ancient Greeks than that of Paul. It's easy for us to think that God owes us at least what we see other people enjoying. Without knowing it, I think we can take on an ancient Greek view of what the gods are like. This really simplistic and straightforward cause and effect relationship with them. Good things come to those who are good to the gods, who stay on their good side. Bad things come to those who are bad to the gods. Get on their bad side somehow. So good things are a sign that they're for you and powerful. Bad things in your life are a sign that they're against you or that they're just weak. They're too weak to resist what other gods you may have angered. Think back on the Odyssey example. That's the story of Homer's life. He got on the wrong side of the wrong gods. But the God of the Bible, Paul's God, He's not so straightforward. He's uncontrollable. The gods of the Greeks, they're just puppets in our hands. You pull the right string, you get the right result. They're unpredictable on their own. They're responsive to the moment. They don't have purposes or plans that they work that are long-term and higher than what we can understand. When our suffering leads us to doubting God's goodness. I think we need to think more carefully about how we understand what God is like. Paul's God is a God whose ways are not ours. They're higher, often uh, beyond our ability to understand them. But before you reject this picture of God, consider what others have said. A God big enough to blame for what's gone wrong in your life is also a God big enough to have purposes that you don't understand. If he's big enough to blame for not stopping the bad things that have come into your life, and he's also bigger than your mind's ability to sort of bring to heal, to have things in his mind that he's working that aren't exposed to you yet. The God of the Bible isn't controllable, He has his own purposes. They're often invisible to us. But those purposes are good. They're right. They're loving. And you may ask, how can I know that? How can I know that these purposes are loving? They sure don't look like it. I mean, it's one thing to tell me that I can't understand everything in God's ways. But that's a lot to ask. How can you tell that this God is loving even when I can't see it 
in the circumstances of my life? That's the third thing. The answer to that question is the third thing I think we should take from Paul's boast. The third thing his boast means for us is this. The truest measure of his love for us is Jesus. The truest measure of God's love for us in the midst of lives that will have things we didn't choose for ourselves. The truest measure of his love for us when much about our lives may mystify us. The truest and only certain, only immovable measure of his love for us is Jesus. It's interesting to me that in this list of hardships, Paul never complains. He doesn't mention Jesus here, but he he lists off all these things that have happened to him and he just takes it. He doesn't seem surprised that not only has he been rejected by the powers that be, but that God, the ruler of the seas, has wrecked his ship three times while he tries to take the gospel around the world. He doesn't seem blown back by that at all. It hasn't threatened his view of God's goodness. Why? How? Well, in Romans chapter 8 that Bill read earlier, I want you to ask you to flip back over there. Romans chapter 8, another one of his letters to another group of early Christians. I think Paul gives us insight into how he could take all this stuff that came in his life and not question the goodness of God and his love for him. Romans chapter 8. Verse 31 says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, Paul, it looks like you got a lot of people against you, actually, to be honest. That's not how he sees it. Verse 32. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's anchor. Well, his life is topsy-turvy. He's seen all he needs to see to know that whatever God may be doing, it's for him. Who shall separate us, Paul asks, from the love of Christ? Verse 35. Tribulation? He's had that. Distress? Think of his anxiety every day for the churches. Persecution? How about being stoned or receiving the lashes five times or the rod? Shall famine? Many times we went without food. Or nakedness? Exposure in the cold. Danger? Maybe from rivers or robbers in cities in the wilderness at sea. Does this list sounding familiar? Or sword? No. <laughs> In all these things, we are more than conquerors. How can you know that, Paul? Well, it's through him who loved us. He who did not spare his own son loves me. And with his love surrounding me, carrying me, Holding me, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, no matter how much I hate it, will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ.
truest measure of his love for us, whatever else we might experience, is Jesus. Jesus is how God treats his friends. Father, we won't be able to believe that if, if, if you're not for us, not just in what you've already done in Jesus, but in what you do each day to help us believe it. I pray for each person sitting here, each one of them carrying burdens of sorrow that are known only to them and to you. Each one of them, no matter how honest with their friends, harboring things they can't even put words to that weigh them down every day. Help them to know that you see them, that you love them, that you are for them, and that you will carry them home. Help us to accept our weaknesses and even boast in them because we trust they bring us to you. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.